Welcome to Series 2, Episode 4 of Leading in a Climate-Changed World from Olivia Mythodrama. In this episode, we speak to modern mystic and spiritual teacher Thomas Hubel, where we have an in-depth exploration into the causes of the climate emergency, into leadership, and we look at the qualities of leadership that we need to address it. Robin and Thomas talk about the balance that needs to be struck between staying calm, spacious and innovative, but addressing the situation with the right amount of panic. We talk about how these qualities can be taught or developed in leaders. If you wanted to get in touch with us, please do. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the email address is hello at leadinginaclimatechangedworld.com. We're on the socials, uh, on Twitter and Facebook, so please drop by and say hello or follow or like. And it would be fantastic if you're able to share the podcast with people you know, people who might be inspired by the work that we're doing. If there's any feedback at all, just please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. But for now, over to Robin and Thomas. So welcome everybody to our podcast series, Leading in a Climate Changed World. And today it's a great pleasure and privilege to be talking with Thomas Hubel. Thomas is a modern mystic, a spiritual teacher whose work integrates the core insights of the great wisdom traditions with the discoveries of contemporary science, illuminating both with his profound understanding of these. His teachings offer a unique approach for living as a mystic in the marketplace of human activity. His work combines somatic awareness practices, advanced meditative practices, a sophisticated analysis of cultural architecture and transformational processes that address trauma and shadow issues. Thomas's teachings aim to guide practitioners toward a deeper level of self-awareness from an ego-centered worldview to a life of authentic expression, service, and alignment. And since 2004, Thomas has been leading workshops, multi-year training programs, larger events and festivals, He's a sought-after private advisor to social entrepreneurs, business leaders, government officials, spiritual aspirants, and is a regularly featured speaker at conferences and workshops worldwide. So huge thank you and warm welcome to you, Thomas. Thank you, Robin. Happy to be here. And maybe we could start with a look at what, what is the climate emergency? What is it a symptom of? I mean, we talk about it, we see facts and science gives us data about it, but what is it really showing us around the nature of how we experience reality at the moment? I mean, like, maybe we start with um, the fact that everything's changing in life all the time. So there are, there are all the time movements, and I think intelligence is like the fluid adaptation to that process of change. So on the one hand, I think change is always like something that might be challenging for us because I believe a human being expresses three forces or many human beings or systems of human beings express three forces. So one is aspiration and evolution. So there's a natural drive in, in everyone to be creative, to be innovative, to be um, part of a, an evolving, developing world. And that part of us makes us deeply happy when expressed. That par part of us might make us deeply depressed when buried or held back. And that part of us 
is the part of us that expresses creative, creative um, qualities or forces, and also brings about new uh, inventions or new solutions. And and so one way to express it is to say that if a person really expresses that part of him or herself, the person would say, "I'm I'm I'm happy in my becoming." or in, in, in developing. And that's, or I'm expressing the purpose of my life. That's basically what it means. And, and then, but then there are two other forces that I think are very important in the understanding of climate change. Because the part that is happy to change and happy to be creative and happy to be fluid is uh, anyway happy with the movement that's happening. And is very curious and interested to find out more about what needs to be changed. So we are not so uh, worried about that part because that part is the part that actually finds new solutions and that's exactly what we need now. And that part often is kind of buried under or at least sometimes boxed in. The other two forces that we express as human beings, one is creating habits it starts with biological habits like uh, that are also very positive because it's great that I don't need to learn to walk every day. And once I learn it, it stays in my system and it becomes a wired network and I don't need to try every morning again to learn to walk. But like there are habits that in our development, are we, we implement them during our, at the time of our development that actually reduce the power of the fresh, the creative, the innovative part of ourselves because like our lives tend to become habitual. So on the one hand that creates structure, on the other hand it creates repetitive ways of doing things that we get attached to and that, we, that it's, it's a bit harder for us to change. So habits can be changed through training, through education, through learning, and through a creative pressure and necessity. So when we see climate change, we see a growing pressure in our social systems to, to bring about change. So that pressure will force our habits to open up and to create new structures in life that are more contemporary than the ones that we developed so far. But then, then there is another force and, or another aspect of our lives, and that's trauma. And trauma, by its nature, is two things. It's fragmentation and it's frozenness. So when, we, when a, a person goes through an overwhelming experience, either while we grow up as kids or something happens to us, so my nervous system has the function to split off the part that is overwhelmed and full of noise. It's like you hit the mute button on the, like a crazy TV moment and suddenly the movie is without sound and it becomes very quiet in the room. But the movie is still going on. There's still the same craziness, you know, on your screen, but you don't hear it. And in the trauma zone, you, you don't feel it anymore. You literally, reduce one part of your nervous system to shut that off in order to survive, in order to stay functional, in order to go through difficult and overwhelming situations in a better way. So it's an intelligent function. It's not 
something that is bad. It's actually a good function in that moment. But if it's not being integrated again, it creates symptoms. And one of the symptoms is a kind of a rigidity to change because trauma is frozenness. So trauma doesn't want to change. That's its nature because it has been overwhelmed by an overwhelming change experience. And so sometimes when we listen to the climate discussion, we listen to the mixing of two of the two forces that I mentioned now that because we can work on the habits of cultures, we can work on the habits of us as people, we can work on our own habits and in our communities, teams, organizations, institutions, societies. And we can do that through education, training, and also like through the push that life gives us to change. But then not all what we see is that we are too stupid to change or too lazy to change. Sometimes there is a kind of a dismissive uh, tone in why our societies are changing too slowly. And I think sometimes we really miss that trauma is a factor that cannot be pushed to change. Trauma needs to change through care, presence, and relation. And because that's what's needed in order to release that frozen part. And a, a trauma is like a prisoner of time. It's stuck in time and it cannot get any updates from life. And, and on the wider picture, we like countries, societies, areas of the planet went through a much more kind of forceful traumatization through wars and large-scale events that really left some collective scars. And those collective scars, like they are resting in our subconscious, waiting to be released, and they only show up through symptoms. And I think one, symptoms, one symptom that we see is the degree of disembodiment of emotional, mental, and physical fragmentation and how many systems we created are actually fragmented. And all of that together, I think, creates a world at the moment with the rising world population, with technology, modern travel, modern whatever, modern lifestyles, um, and the reduction of our ability to our ability to adapt is I think what we see at the moment that the made that the biggest so the global symptom is actually coming back to us in the form of climate change. And I think we have to get the message without, without ending up in, in a kind of a crisis emergency moment where we, through the pressure and stress, try to apply all tools to fix the problem. Because with the old tools we got so far, that's not going to help us. Maybe I'll stop here because it's, but I think it's a collection of some factors that I talked about now. Yeah, thank you. And so you mentioned a number of the causes of the trauma. So it sounds like what you're saying is that there's a, there's a global trauma, there's a collective trauma, there's individual trauma, but there's a kind of global trauma that makes it very hard to, to address or even to feel fully the reality of what's being experienced on the, in, in the world and how the, the, the urgency is sometimes gets in the way of, of the care, attention, presence that you talked about. 
So maybe you could speak a bit more also about this question of urgency, like so also the language that we use, because sometimes people talk about it as a climate emergency, and then there's a kind of panic mode, and, and other people are saying, well, you know, maybe we don't need to panic, but we definitely need to innovate. So how do we balance these things? The, need, the, the, the science seems to tell us we've got 10 to 12 years to kind of bend the curve of emissions, but we also want to innovate and be spacious to do that. Yeah, I think you said it. Like, first of all, we need to understand the structures, natural structures in our systems, bodies, emotional systems, hormone systems, all kinds of feedback loops within our physical selves and also the, the nervous system wiring. They're supposed to be fluid structures, stable and adaptable. When we are hurt, those structures become rigid. They become like ice, like pillars made out of ice. And those structures, they look much more rigid, so they are not able to be in the, in the fluid movement of evolution. And so when, when a, a, the, the healthy part of us feels the necessity to change or needs a different feedback update with its natural ecosystem, so it's going to do that naturally. That's what we call response ability. The ability to respond to my life's circumstances. And nature is part of my life's circumstances. So if, if, and we call it if my emotional and physical and mental self is open, if I rest in a state of vulnerability and relatedness to life, when there's a need to change, I will change my life accordingly. But we see more often than not, that, that how as human beings we tend to hold on to old things that are outdated because we are actually afraid to change. So change in the rigid structures brings up the fear that is part of the iced over parts of our lives. And so responsibility means that I need to be able to experience you, whatever, my society that I live in, the state of the natural environment that I live in, in order to change my life naturally, then it's not a moral implication. It's, it's a natural wish because I feel I care. But if I'm numb, I won't care because I don't feel. Then I need to read in the paper, oh, I have to do this and that, or we should be doing this and that. And then the adoption process is way slower and rigidity always needs a crisis to get opened up. But when it gets opened up, it breaks. So this means that it causes a lot of collateral damage. So we, so we understand dynamic structures, rigid structures. Dynamic structures change through the evolutionary pressure fluidly. Rigid structures, they, there's a lot of like water that pushes against the dam. And then one day it breaks. But once it breaks, it creates a lot of destruction. And so what we see at the moment is, of course, both. We see natural, the natural impulse to change. Many people are getting it and we, we want to change stuff. But there are still very big structures or power structures or, you know, governmental structures, whatever, that they, they, the change is too slow. So the human system within the wider ecosystem 
which are not separate because nature is part of me. So the nature inside of myself is either something that I feel or it's something that I don't feel. So it looks like nature is around me. But my body, the water in my body, the carbon, the minerals, the metals, the everything in my in my body is planet. And even the, the distinction that many people make is like the human beings are on the planet. That's already a function, I believe, of collective trauma. We're not on the planet. We are part of the planet. We are an interrelated system. So it's not the story human beings are destroying the planet is only partly true. Of course, that's what we create, but we are also the planet. And I believe that distinction that we keep and perpetuate that distinction is already part of the problem. That's already part of why we are, why we are not able to change it easily. And so, so that's one thing. And then there's another thing in, I think in our development that is important. Groundedness, like a full experience of my body, an experience of my emotional landscape, being in tune with the rhythm of my life. These are very important functions. When we are hurt or when we are walking on a carpet of fear, so when we carry a lot of fear inside, we usually tend to run faster than when we are in our natural inner connection. So a person that feels him or herself and is, is, is grounded will, will work, live, act, speak, do the things that he or she is doing in synchronization with that inner flow. And that inner flow is in synchronization with the bigger system. But if we are not really connected to ourselves, or if we, if we carry a lot of fear inside, we might act faster. We are kind of in a hurry. We are constantly running. And we created, I believe, a business system that is ran, running too fast. And that's why we, and running burns more energy than actually is needed. So when our lives are based on fear, we will be ahead of ourselves. There are many people that want to be more developed than they are. Why? Where does that come from, that option that I, I should be ahead of myself? Why would I live outside of myself if I can be here? So a person that is synchronized inside will know, okay, that's my current state of development. That's the aspiration or the path that I have in front of myself but I am here. I don't need to play that I'm more than I am. So, but like the synchronization with oneself is very important. So now we are coming into like more like a crisis-like moment on the planet. And all these factors are, are super important because if I respond to the, to the climate emergency or the climate change, from a place of vulnerability and openness and fluidity, I will naturally be very interested in it. I will naturally tend to make my contribution. Nobody needs to save the planet, but all together we create, a, we are becoming the answer to climate change. But if, 
if I'm if I'm more scared or afraid or traumatized, it might be that I either I approach the issue just mentally, or I I will actually put on the brakes. I will shut it down. I will not hear it. I will say I get overwhelmed. I have a busy life. I cannot take care of this. And or it will really scare me and I'll become indifferent and I will not feel. And and so I believe the wise uh, the wise aspect of leadership or global leadership or climate leadership is to understand these three forces. The part of us that is natural, uh, naturally developing, the part of us that creates habits, that needs education and needs um, evo healthy evolutionary pressure to open habits into new structures of consciousness that are more adaptable or more suitable than the old ones. And then there is trauma. And for we have to understand, I believe, more the dimension of trauma and how big that dimension is, especially the collective dimension, because all of us have been born into a traumatized world. We don't know the world without it. Everybody. The teachers, our parents most probably, the people that we met, people that taught us at universities, like we... We, we learned from a world in our upbringing that is already fragmented. So fragmentation and separation are two natural aspects of our world. And that we can think things that we can't live seems normal. So I can say ABC, but I cannot walk ABC. And it seems that's how life is. And I said, no, that's not how life is. That's how a traumatized life is. Because the implementation and the embodiment of learning is a super important aspect because only then my life is in coherence and I can walk my talk. So somebody can know a lot about childhood attachment, be very hurt in one's own childhood attachment, and all the knowledge, even if I write a PhD about it, it doesn't change my life. And, and I think that um, the synchronization, the inner synchronization is very important. And that's why we need to find a way collectively how to take care of the part that actually in its nature is non-movement or frozenness. Because this part will always show up as, as the sand in the engine. This will always show up as the part that doesn't work. But it's not that it doesn't work. It's simply, it's simply frozen. Yeah, that's so rich. There's so many different ways that we could, we could explore this topic now. But I, I think I want to, because you've already in a way described some of the qualities that leaders need to have at the moment or some of the awarenesses they need to have. You talked about these three parts. We need to be aware of the, the natural evolutionary movement that we have. We need to be aware of the habits that we form. We need to be trauma-informed also. But I wonder if you could also talk with us a bit about what is leadership? Like leadership is definitely different from, from management and from being a boss. But what is your understanding of leadership and how can we develop it in ourselves and others? Yeah. I think um, that's it's a complex it's a complex topic. What is leadership? Um, could fill a whole course about it. Yeah. Um, leadership, I believe, is the combination of competence 
and relation. In its most simple form, it's the, the combination of I'm a leader only if I express some competence. And even as a parent, you know, that my competence is that I am in life more years and I have more life experience. And I know that it's not so healthy to just run around in a city and, and cross streets without taking care of cars. So there is a competence in many ways. Competence is not just only professional competence. There's competence that is embodied, embodied competence that I can relate to my environment and both together is leadership. I need to care in order to have a competence-based leadership. And there is another leadership style that is power-based uh, leadership. Just because I'm born into a more rich family, just because I'm born, I'm higher up in the hierarchy than somebody else, or because I, I kind of got some power from life, I tell you what to do. Just because I'm the boss of the company, I tell you what to do. But that, that can happen with, without any caring, and it's usually based on fear. And I believe, especially in, the, in some of the centuries that we are transitioning out of at the moment, power-based parenting was also a bigger part of the education field, let's say. So when we look at leadership, either we are at least partly based on, on a power-based leadership, which is usually based on fear and following, or we are, we are coming from a relational perspective, that it is true that in some, in some hierarchical way, through the competence and maybe a place in an organization, there is more power, but the power doesn't get exerted through just enforcement. It gets, it gets, it, it gets transmitted through relation, and the leadership is more based on resonance and competence than on power. But that's much more, it's much easier when I get triggered to tell somebody, okay, let's just do it. Yeah, I can or I say, do it or you get fired. So then I scare you and maybe you're doing it, but you won't be happy with it and it will have an effect on our organization. Or I take the time, like in parenting, I take the time, we sit down, I explain to you why that's important. We find an agreement, we find a natural resonance, and then we move on. But for some people they might say, okay, it's less efficient, but I think eventually it's much more efficient because we create human systems that stay more open, vulnerable, and relation becomes the data network of the system. But we have to invest something in that. And we have to heal the wounds and the bruises of maybe our power-based education that we went through in schools with our parents. Like there are lots of authority projections that are based on the wounds of power-based education. And so that's why I'm saying if we, there are many more aspects, but if we break it down to the most essential, I need a competence that makes me a leader, but why, why else would I lead something? I am stepping onto the stage of leadership because I have something to offer. So that's one thing. And the other part is 
that I'm able to relate that in a mature way, in a response-able way to my environment. So the relation becomes the carrier and the data connection. And the competence is the expression of why I, why I am in a, in a place of leadership. And so that's, that's the starting point. And then we can refine, you know, these two aspects into many, many other aspects that are needed to, to, to be a leader and eventually become a wise leader. So to, to be willing to, to be curious, to be willing to be courageous and, and uh, explore challenging situations, to look at my own triggers and shadow aspects and traumatizations in order to open myself up more and more to the world to be able to become the voice, like I am of service of a system. I become the voice of a system, not I'm leading. Leadership based on separation is usually based on power. Leadership based on interconnectedness is based on relation. And so that means that I really need to sometimes take the time and contemplate, reflect, feel, tune in, find out, not know. You know, there are many, many aspects of leadership that are, that are based on wisdom principles because eventually leadership, like everybody who becomes a parent and is more or less healthy, is initiated into leadership. And everybody who is being promoted in a job or has a, a certain function in society is initiated into a higher responsibility. Like leadership comes with a higher responsibility because in, in more powerful, let's say, positions in society, we can also create more damage. So it really needs more responsibility. And so compassion, empathy, and all the, what people call soft skills are definitely needed beside the competence in the field that I'm working in. Yeah, that's beautiful. And again, as you say, we could spend a lot of time just diving deeper into, into what we mean by leadership. But I'm also starting to, to feel like maybe we can move the conversation into a place about, um, you've spoken about, about leaders needing to be field thinkers. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit with you. And also you've spoken about how we can also, when we're in service, the kind of leadership that you just described, when we're in service, we get a kind of energetic boost to our system so that we can be of service in an even greater way. And you've also spoken about how these kind of practices, I think, can also enlarge what you call the game board of humanity and that the planet's resources are not actually finite. And right. I wonder if we could speak a bit about on, on that kind of level, like the energetic principles of leadership also that draws in more and can actually expand the range of possibilities that we know. Yeah, so I think fear-based or power-based or trauma-based um, leadership is, is usually based on scarcity. So if somebody is constantly afraid to lose something, to lose my job, to lose resources, to lose, to lose, to lose, it's based on scarcity. And competence-based leadership is based on abundance. So there's something that is adding 
like there's a kind of a power inside of my own creativity, your creativity, anybody's creativity that wants to contribute something meaningful to humanity and really cares about humanity, then it's not just about my success, but it's about what I bring to the world. So uh, uh, the purpose of a human being is never without the environment. Like Bruce Springsteen said uh, very lovely in his show on Broadway, he thanked his audience and he said, listen, I thank you for like being part of my purpose for allowing me to express my purpose. So the audience, Bruce Springsteen would be nobody without anybody listening to him. He would be a simple man. His purpose was like the expression of, of his, his talents and his artistic talents that touched so many people and informed so many people in the world. That's, to, that's an interconnectedness. It only works together. So once I know that, that an individual is always entangled with the collective, there is no separate individual. It's always a kind of an, a kind of a Mobius trip, like a, the infinity sign. And so that, that interrelation is true for everybody. Nobody can express any purpose without others. And that's amazing. We are always interdependent. And so that's also true for leadership. There is no leader without anybody to be led. And, and then it's a natural learning. Then it's a kind of a, a beautiful process of relation, of the transference of information and skills and qualities, and, and like a, a mutual motivation or intention that we have within the system that we agree upon, like a company shares a motivation. Mm-hmm. And um, so when we, when we lead, like there is, of course, it's true that there is a kind of a, because we are, we become part of a field. Like a company is also a field. An institution is a field. Society is a large field. And, and I believe so there's a separateness of our thinking sometimes. It's a dissociated thinking. And then there is a connected thinking which combines our minds with our hearts. That means that when I, I can either think about you or I can think you. I can think and feel you at the same time. It's different. It means I feel you. I have a a felt inner representation of Robin in myself, and I can have a cognitive reflection or thought process about you at the same time, but that's different. Um, And so field thinking is that when I think about my company, I can be in a felt inner experience of my company. I can feel my company. I can see where things are flowing, where things are not flowing, what needs to be improved, what needs to be upgraded, you know, what upgrades itself. So there are many dynamics that I can not only think about rationally, I can have a vivid inner experience of my company as an organization. I can have a vivid inner experience of parts of society. But because in a state of traumatization or disembodiment, 
I can't do that because I don't feel anything. I'm numb. And that's why it seems like, oh, what are you saying? Why, how can you feel your company? It sounds a bit abstract or sometimes unreachable for some people. And for some leaders, it will be the most natural thing ever. If you ask them, they will say, yeah, that's what I do every day. I all the time have an intuitive sense of, of uh, the organization that I'm working in. I feel connected. I feel when people are not happy, when they're like, some people have that as a natural skill. And I think some of the, also some of the more successful people, they feel their markets. They feel what to invest in, what not to invest in, where to go and where not to go. Like there's a felt in the experience of, okay, this is the right thing. It's, it's very much, even if we think we are in such a rational society and that our Google Sheets and our Excel Sheets will run the show. But that's, I don't think that that's really, uh, that's only one part. It's an important part. But that's not what runs the show. What runs the show is that I say this, I feel this is it. This is what we're going to do. And I think for many people, that's when they really explore how they get to decisions, they get through them uh, via their intuitive sense. And um, so I believe that the, the inner synchronization of a leader is very important like that I rest in myself, that I have an emotional openness. This makes me also be reachable for people I work with. It makes me emotionally connected. It gives a warm feeling, a feeling of hospitality, generosity, a feeling of availability and not being removed or distant, but to be engaged. And, and that creates kind of a closeness. And I believe that closeness is what creates a strong group motivation, that we feel we are, we are doing something together. And, and so I think that's what you, just to also talk a little bit to the field thinking term that you uh, used before. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's really clear also and, and very powerful to, to go through life like that in a way to say I'm not separate from my company either. I can kind of feel my company and host my company in my being and the markets and the wider society also. And then the other point that I want to invite you to, to touch on is, is, and sometimes you make this movement like this, like, like that we can draw in energy or we can expand the range of possibilities that we think are limited. And maybe you could just speak a bit to that, also to this, to when we're of service and we receive a kind of energetic boost <laughs> in our life because we're in service. What what what's happening there? What's the kind of mystical understanding of those principles, and how can leaders also rest in in that awareness? Yeah, there, like in the mystical understanding, um, or in the kind of inner. Mystical means the inner core of some of the wisdom traditions. We, we look at it, first of all, that trauma comes with a sense of scarcity. Something's missing. And since we more and more know and understand that trauma is a transgenerational phenomenon, so it's being passed on from one generation to the next, Family systems that we grow up in have a certain sense of limitation or scarcity. So if three kids grow up in a family system and the parents are not able to really hold the three kids as three kids, 
So there will be kind of a, a sense of scarcity. And that sense of scarcity becomes an internally wired reality. And then I live in a world where, it's, where other people also experience similar things. And when the trauma gets harder, so the scarcity gets more. So we are, I believe we are sharing a world where at least a certain degree of our culture shares an inner state of scarcity. And that scarcity comes with the feeling of we, we don't have enough. And I constantly need to effort to have enough. And that's different from healthy aspiration, participation, engagement. That's different. We are passionate about things that we do. Doesn't mean that I constantly need to burn my energy to, to be part of something. And so the scarcity, on the one hand, might create a feeling that we are in a finite world and that finite world determines our future. On the other hand, in the, in the more contemplative traditions, we know that, for example, our nervous system, when we go into a more spacious and more connected inner state, and we learn to listen to it, Otto Schammer, for example, in the theory you talks a lot about it, that when you go into states of stillness, you touch on you touch highly creative inner states. And those highly creative or innovative inner states show up as impulses, as ideas, as solutions, as innovation. And they they allow us to to get out of our busy mind where we think often binary and in either or should should not is it good is it bad and we go beyond that in ourselves so to come to an inner environment of spaciousness that transcends those dualities and then there's often a like a, a feeling of high creativity and many of the wisdom traditions talked about that and when we touch those highly creative states or we some people have the feeling it kind of it it flows into them some people feel that that's something that they experience in the depth of their heart um, that's the abundance of life that's connected to the force that drives the universe because the universe is in move everything's moving Nothing in the, since the universe is an expanding universe, everything in it is moving. Otherwise, no expansion. So if everything is moving, my, my deepest nature is also movement because I'm also moving. And when we contemplate our perception, then we see everything we perceive, think, feel is constantly moving. Nothing is ever fixed. And some things are moving slower like it's great that the table underneath my computer is moving very slowly because but even the atoms and the, the molecules and the particles of the table are moving and um, so when we when we touch those inner states we actually touch abundance and how often have we seen in human history that we hit kind of a seeming dead end 
like there were major challenges that humanity went through already and and some people came up with creative solutions that kind of changed the course of of a culture of an area in the world of, of humanity and that's why i believe the more we make this a resource not only can we transcend slowly the trauma scarcity but we actually can experience how it would be to have a life that is shared by people that are generous. Generosity is something you need a source inside in order to be generous. Otherwise you'd say, listen, I don't, I don't have enough myself, so I'm careful of what I give. But people who are generous inside, they give appropriately because it doesn't make sense to throw everything onto somebody. But there is a, a sense of creative abundance. And that becomes a home. Yeah, so I think that creative abundance is what wisdom traditions spoke about or speaking about. And, and, and the more people become like wells, like we're, you know, water wells. So we have more and more energy that enriches the system that we are living in. And creativity is one way, or innovation is one way how to call that phenomenon. But it happened over the course of thousands and thousands of years all the time. Evolution and growth of life is based on abundance. There's something new, like something new is being born. And that's, that's a beautiful process. Yeah, it is. And is, is that hope? Does that give, is that one of the sources of hope? Or maybe we could close with a, a reflection you might have about hope, optimism. It's, it's part of the dialogues that I've had with many people in these podcasts is about what is the nature of hope? And is it useful to be in a place of hope? Or does that mean we're not really present with the reality that we're in? Yeah, that's true. Like we need to discern two levels of hope. And it's very important to really contemplate that because it's easy, yeah, they get easily mixed. Am I hoping for a better world because I don't want to be here? And not wanting to be here is not just that I'm suicidal. Not wanting to be here means that when I stop and I rest in my life, I get flooded by all the stress, all the fears, all the undigested emotions, all the trauma that I or my ancestors went through. And that's why I'm running all the time, why, I put, why I'm getting entertained all the time, why I feed myself with information all the time. Because if I fast, stuff will come from inside out. So that's why many people put stuff from outside in, that, it's, that it stays quiet. But in the moment, our... It's like the detox mechanism of our body, my liver, my kidneys, my, my whole body. So when you fast, so stuff comes out, like the body detoxes toxins that we put in with our food all the time. But in a state of fasting, the body actually loves it because it's something that can release, like it's a time where we can release stuff. And so, there is a sense of hope like that I aspire to 
when I don't want to be here, I'm constantly imagining like the, a better life, but actually the issues in my life I have because I'm not really present and grounded in my life. I'm constantly running away from my life and my past. And then there's the other hope, which is, as you said, a grounded sense in the driving force of life, in the sacredness of life, in, in, in the sense of being alive. And the sense of being alive is inspiring, it's charismatic, it's, it's vitalizing, it's creative. Like that's how we feel when we have creative moments or when people feel they're in a kind of self-authoring, creative participation in life. Then it's, it's, uh, it's a sense of expansion. And whenever you have a creative moment, you naturally feel vitalized and, and energized. So that's a sense, that's a, a deeper connection to the sacredness of life itself. And there is an ongoing driving force that some people call hope. And, and I think that's where we literally are connected to the fact that the future calls us. When the future is not an avoidance of life, then the future is the expansion of life. So that's a difference. For some people, the, we want the future, we imagine a future because we are running away. And then we are kind of in a kind of a bypassing of life. And that's what we call hope because we need to hope for something because we don't want to look what's here. And in a state of presence, the past and the future are enfolded. So the future is already here and it's calling us. And, and it appears to us as insights and, and solutions and innovations. And I believe if we call that hope, so, so then I think that's, that's a very positive version of hope. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a lovely note to, to close on also the sense of the future calling us and resting in a, in a grounded connection to the sacredness of life and that that's and the source of life and the creativity that that brings and that that's really the source of, of hope that we can carry forward. So Thomas, maybe one last question is about a phrase that I've heard you utter which is that the planet's resources are not finite. And I think it would be great to bring us into an understanding of what you mean by that. So the fact that we are part of a creative process means, I believe that even scientifically, when we look at the world, there is a, like philosophically, it's a, it's a good conversation to explore our scientific breakthroughs, exploring what was there before and we just didn't see it, we didn't feel it, we didn't measure it, or is it that plus that constantly new things are being created that are emerging and that we find out about as well. And so, in my understanding, the world, because I don't see human beings separate from the planet. I, I believe we are, the, my body is the closest part of nature that I am related to or relating through. 
that means that in a in an inner state of coherence in an inner state of inner connectedness we can feel and feel connected to nature through our body and if we are hurt or traumatized and disconnected from our body then we can't feel many things so they look out there they look like as if they were out there so the tree is out there and that's a very different experience than the tree is out there but interrelated to the tree in here but that's not often how we would phrase our experience so the contemplative practice helps us to open our inner world to that kind of state of interrelatedness or Thich Nhat Hanh, a famous uh, Buddhist teacher calls it interbeing that the sun is not separate from me experiencing the light and the warmth of the sun like we are one system so that's one thing the other thing is that i believe the planet is one option amongst many options of that planet given the current state of consciousness of the planet which includes the state of consciousness of humanity of course as well so that that means that within that state of consciousness and all the people all the beings all the animals all the everything that creates that system has a current state of consciousness and that makes one possibility real but that's only one option so if that state of consciousness decreases everything becomes smaller we see this in a in a in the development of human beings when often when we come into deeper crisis situations higher functions younger functions of evolution start to disintegrate and give way to more primal functions of survival of egoism of self-centeredness of how do i survive better even if the tribal survival instinct that we support each other is a helpful tool so i will support the community in order to survive better but to see that that's not a natural higher function of consciousness that's a function that we express in group survival situations like a tribal group survival and and so higher functions are based on compassion on inclusion on presence on interconnectedness on the on the on the deep realization of interconnectedness not just as a mental idea as a felt moment to moment to moment life experience and so when we when we look at that interconnectedness it expresses a field of intelligence the system is a complex system that circulates information like data and and not only internet data data on many levels is circulating in the system so collaboration and healthy collaboration is based on relational awareness and the fact that i include you you include me and together we develop something and the more the data flows between us uh, the more we can create together so the planet on one level of consciousness looks like a on another level of consciousness looks like b and this means the more we that's why scientific breakthroughs 
and state of consciousness are interrelated, which in its more radical understanding means that if somebody meditates in the Himalayas, somebody else can have a, a scientific breakthrough or an innovative idea when they drive to work. And we don't see those things usually as interrelated. We see them, oh, the, there's somebody sitting somewhere unknown in the Himalayan mountains and somebody else has the copyrights on the idea. And, but seen from a much bigger perspective, we are just entrusted with serving an idea. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to humanity. But the, the, the energy and the work and all the competence that I put in in order to do so I'm entrusted and that's, I believe, should be the rewarding function, not that it belongs to me. And when, when we, so on different levels of consciousness, the planet literally has a different size. And everybody, every time a human being is born, the planet is actually getting bigger, not smaller. And so there's an interesting, there's an interesting phenomenon, but we don't see it that way because we, we limit often the, the planet or the understanding of the planet through our state of consciousness. And of course, there is kind of an overpopulation, but that's, that's a, a different topic, I believe. Meaning that every human being brings through purpose and creativity and intelligence an additional information into life. And I think if we create more potential-oriented societies where we support each other's potential, we have enormous creativity on the planet in order to solve many, many issues that we have. It's not that we, it's also often not that we don't have the solutions, often we don't have the implementation of the solutions because it seems so hard. It's not that we don't know what to do. Often it's that implementing what we know how to do, even in our education system, some of the leading edge breakthroughs don't even make it into the regular education system. Although we know already much more, we are still teaching other things. And so until it trickles down and it gets implemented, it takes some time. And that's why I think the understanding of trauma at the moment as a science is very helpful because it shows us, even in our neurological scans and functions, we, uh, we can learn to map and see more the effects, the limiting effects that trauma brings, but also the resilience that the resolution of trauma brings. Because if somebody gets traumatized and really integrates the trauma and takes it on and develops it further, that person creates a new sense of resilience for himself and others that becomes an added value to humanity. And so uh, I believe that, that the, so that's, that's one thing, and maybe the last thing is that in the mystical traditions, we see the divine God, the creative force of the universe, as, as an overflowing, abundant flow of creation or creativity. So being connected to that inner force that right now 
pulsates through the veins of everybody that listens to this conversation, that inner connection is an ongoing process of creativity. It constantly adds something to the world, to the universe, to each and everybody's personal lives. And the more we practice to be connected to that force, as we said before, there is hope in the good sense, but there is an unlimited resource of creative energy. It, it expands right now as we are talking the universe. So it creates the, the whole movement of life. And I believe being grounded in that movement is an ongoing um, additional energy that we bring into the system. So there is not one fixed world, but there are different, there is one planet and there are different possibilities of the same planet, but only one we can make real together. And the fact is that we have to do it together because it's a shared state of consciousness. So everybody is needed because everybody is in and everybody is part of an orchestra. Imagine you had the, the I don't know, the Philharmonie Orchestra and some musicians are really passionate. Some musicians sometimes show up and sometimes don't. Some musicians are totally indifferent. And some musicians actually disturb the others to play. And now make it work. And, and I believe that's our, that's our challenge. We cannot just cut them out, the ones that are disturbing and the ones that are indifferent and the ones that come from time to time just to... No, we have to make it work with all of them. And I think that's wise leadership, is to see that what seems to be in the way is the way. There's nothing in the way. That's how we externalize problems. That's a basic trauma function, to say this weakness is in the way, instead of what I experience as a weakness is actually an intelligent function that I don't understand, that I lost the capacity to listen to in myself and in others. And learning means that I will learn to listen to it in a way that I will be able to integrate what has been abandoned already. And many, many issues in our world look like disturbing us, look like as if they were blocking our way. Without it, it would be much better. And in an abundant world, we would say, no, this symptom has a meaning and it needs to be addressed. And even if it's difficult for me to find a solution for it, the only way is we cannot just cut it out. We have to relate to it. And so the more we, we are willing to look at the symptoms that seem like disturbances, we become more whole. And wholeness, I believe, is the remedy for a world of scarcity to create a world of abundance. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you very much. And thanks for your time again today, Thomas. We really appreciate it. And for such a rich dialogue that you've, you've engaged in. I think it's been very multifaceted and deep and rich on lots of different levels. And I also want to appreciate your work in the world. I think you bring this metaphor of being a mystic in the marketplace, and that feels very much the call of our time. 
So thank you for bringing that. Thank you for embodying it so, so wonderfully and powerfully in the world. And we wish you every success going forward. And thanks again for your time today. Yes, and for you too, Robin, for your work and your life. Thank you. Mm -hmm.